Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Well, um, this whole month I've been, um, last actually couple, three months, I've been talking about fatherhood and fatherlessness and the role of fathering. And, and I, I really want to continue in that stream um, last, uh, I think I was actually here, was I here last week or the week before? I've been here a lot, you know. They've given up on you and they're like, we'll just send Chris over there. And I'm like, I, I, I think that, you know, I think that we should just take over. I think we should just break off from Bethel and start our own church here. <laughs> we won't tell anybody. We'll just stop giving them the offerings until they... <laughs> Uh, obviously joking. Um, well, I, I, I want to talk more uh, about the, uh, today I want to talk about the role of fatherhood. And I, I know that, uh, I guess I, I feel a little sensitive to the fact that I often uh, preach on uh, empowering women. And I don't often talk about fathers and sons and, and uh, men in general in, in a way that's exclusive. But I, I feel like um, I, that I am to talk about fatherhood, specifically fatherhood, and I do understand that we are in a very, uh, we're in a season, as I talked about last week and the week before, that we're in a season of the most fatherless generation in the history of America in which our fathers are, are alive but not present. And uh, I, I want to remind you that I, I talked about the fact that Malachi spoke of a season in uh, Malachi chapter 4 where he said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, Elijah the prophet will come and he'll return, he'll restore the hearts of fathers to sons and, uh, and to daughters and restore the hearts of uh, sons and daughters to fathers. And, um, and I said that I, I really feel like this is what the Lord's doing right now. Like I believe that there is another kind of promise keepers movement and probably not called promise keepers, but there's a movement arising in which the father God will actually uh, identify himself in this movement as we had the Jesus movement, as we had the charismatic movement of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that we're in the, we're on the, uh, in the midst or at least on the, uh, uh, right on the edge of, of the Father moving powerfully in, re- in the restoration of fatherhood. And I believe it's not going to just restore uh, sons, but it's going to restore sons and daughters. So I, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about fatherhood. Um, and uh, our, our own journey, Kathy and my own journey, um, you, everybody has, I, that's been here for any length of time has heard my story. I grew up basically fatherless. My father drowned when I was three. And, um, and my grandfather really played a, a, a big role in my life. Uh, but when we, uh, we, we went to Weaverville, moved to Weaverville uh, many years ago, I, we were married about three years when we moved to Weaverville. And about a year later, we had this hippie and his uh, flower child wife become our pastors. That was uh, Bill and Benny Johnson. <laughs> and we immediately became uh, the closest of friends. I think it was, I don't think a month passed before we, we really just became very close friends. They had, um, well, we, we, we ended up with, uh, with uh, two, two daughters and a son. And of course, so later on, we adopted our, our oldest son. And they had two sons and a daughter, and so we, they were all raised together. We actually lived with the Johnsons for six months while we were building our house. That was, very, that was a very fun time because uh, two of our kids or three of our kids were potty training at the same time. So they used to sit on the toilet and laugh at each other. And it was a very, very fun time. 
we count that as one of the most beautiful times in our family's history. And, and as our kids got older, they all dated one another, and we were going to be a Johnson, and we just knew that one of them would at least marry, but that didn't happen. But now we have grandkids, and a couple of them like each other, so we're like, the dream is still alive. We're still <laughs> like Abraham and Sarah, still waiting to be in the Johnson family. So struck down, but not destroyed. So, uh, <laughs> but um, both Kathy and I came out of very dysfunctional homes. Kathy's, uh, the dysfunction in Kathy's home was uh, quite different than mine. Um, they, they didn't have yelling and screaming and breaking things, and that sort of thing, just had a father who, who was rarely home and, uh, and kind of led to a, a lot of dysfunction in their home. And so we got married. I remember, uh, the, we, Kathy and I, obviously, you know this, we met really young. We were, met when we were, Kathy was 12, I was 15, quite a bit older man. <laughs> and uh, when, we, when Kathy was 13, uh, we got engaged. I actually bought her a really nice uh, wedding uh, ring, uh, engagement ring. And uh, so we were together for five years before we got married. Uh, f- uh, about three and a half of those years, we weren't Christians. And I remember the year before we got married, uh, we were uh, just together uh, someplace, and I said to Kathy, you know, um, I, I, I do want to get married. You know, you know how you kind of get a little bit of cold feet? You start thinking about the responsibility of like, we're actually going to get married. Like, this is actually forever. And, and as a man, like, I'm actually going to be responsible to be to, to be the provider and, and, and kind of start, I don't know, for, for, for gals that's maybe a little bit different, but for guys it's like, do I measure up? Am I capable? Am I able? Am I prepared? And of course coming out of the home I came out of, I was, those, the answers to lots of those questions were, I wasn't prepared, I didn't know how to uh, be a husband. I had never seen it modeled in my life uh, very well. Um, my grandfather was a very good man, he was, he was great to me. I, w- I wouldn't say he was a great role model um, as, a, as a, a husband. I remember a quick story. I'll tell you the story. My grandmother and uh, my grandfather, they argued constantly. We came from a Spanish family, so sarcasm was like, the more we like you, the more we tease you. Was anybody else like that? I know our students are getting it because I tease them constantly. And, uh, and some of them come from cultures that that's just dishonorable. It's like, in our culture, this is the only way we like you. So my grandmother and grandfather was very difficult to tell if they liked each other or not because they just teased each other constantly. I, and I remember my, my grandmother would say to my grandfather, you know, like, how do you, how do you like the food? And he'd say, it's terrible. Give me some more. You know, it was like, it was like that constantly. And I remember my grandmother and grandfather getting in a really a, a fight. At least it seemed like they were in a fight. Like I said, they, they argued constantly. So it was really hard to know when they were mad and when they were just teasing each other. But my grandmother was mad because my grandfather wasn't taking care of the lawns, which was a big deal to my grandmother. And, uh, and the, the front lawn uh, was, was brown, and my grandmother was like, you haven't fixed the watering system. And I remember, uh, I remember them being in a, it seemed like a pretty good argument. So uh, I was always with my grandfather if he was home. And, and so I, my grandfather, you know, gave me a wink on the way out. And I never knew quite what the wink meant, but it kind of meant like, I got this, you know. So we went out in the front lawn where my grandmother was talking about how, you know, the water hadn't worked for two months and the lawn was dead and my grandfather didn't care about things like that. And, and so anyway, we were, we, we got out there with shovels and we were digging up the lawn and I, I thought, well, my grandfather's going to plant a new lawn. But about an hour later, after we finished digging up the, lo- the lawn, 
so you know, it was probably four hours after the argument, a big old cement truck came <laughs> with green cement. And my grandfather filled the lawn in with green cement. That was his, my grandmother wanted green out front. That's what her argument was. So my grandfather filled it in with green cement. So <laughs> when my grandmother came out, she wasn't very encouraged. <laughs> so that was kind of the way I was raised. And, and I, I was in a, obviously I said I was in a Spanish family. Anybody come out of a Spanish or at least a Latino kind of family? Yes, yeah, so... I was in, and we weren't believers, so, you know, it was kind of like the man was in charge, unless he wasn't, you know, and uh, uh, <laughs> my grandmother had her own way of being in charge, but uh, it, was a, it was a very awkward kind of thing, um, but uh, so, you know, when, about the year before we got married, uh, I remember Kathy and I were, uh, I can't remember where we were, but I remember the conversation as clearly as if it was yesterday. And I said to her, I want to marry you, but I don't want to ever argue. I never want to have an argument. So I want you to promise me that we will never argue. And she's like, you know, first of all, Kathy would never argue anyway. I don't know if you know Kathy, but like she's a peacemaker. So I'm like, I'm actually talking to me like, promise me you'll never argue, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, you know, we made this covenant that we would never argue in. Like, we had to break that covenant some years into our marriage because that was a very bad plan to never tell each other what you're really thinking, you know, and that's kind of what happened. And so we, uh, we met Bill and Benny, I think it was year three in our marriage, right, something like that. And I, I remember that we would go, we spent uh, probably five days out of seven days a week at their house for probably 14 years at their house or they would be at our house. And uh, our kids were all raised together, and we, we, I, I watched the kids every Wednesday night. There was a women's meeting, and I, I watched all the kids. You can imagine that. what that was like. <laughs> Brian Johnson and Derek, they were just like, anyway, it was very funny. <laughs> My girls were very well behaved, and they were other than that. And Bill would always say, you're going to have a boy someday, and you're going to see what it's like to have real children. And so then we had Jason, and he was like hyperactive, and Bill would just sit back and laugh, and <laughs> Jason would break things and not listen, and Bill thought that was real funny. <laughs> but we'd be over at Bill and Benny's house for several hours, uh, two or three hours a night, and, and we would go home, and for years we would lay in bed, and we would talk about the way they interacted, the way... They interacted with their children the way they interacted with each other. And we just lay in bed at night and just talk about Because we had never seen people behave nobly towards one another. I grew up in, it was competition. I grew up in a competition. Like I'm saying, my, my mother and father were completely dysfunctional. My stepfathers were violent. My grandfather and grandmother, who I really loved, I loved them both. But I mean, that was, my, that was the best idea I had in marriage. And I knew that wasn't, that didn't look fun. I liked, I liked the humor of it, but I, didn't, I knew they weren't connected. And I had never actually been close enough to somebody who had a great marriage to actually see how it worked. And we got to be inside. And then when we live with them for six months, you know, you can't pretend when you live with somebody, right? And we lived in a very small home, so I think we were like 1,200 square feet home and uh, three bedrooms. And we were all packed. They moved their kids into one bedroom. 
and we were all three of all, I think at the time it was four of us, and a rat, and Bill hated the rat, and the rat got out one day, and we couldn't find the rat, and we're like, find the freaking rat before Bill gets home was kind of the, Kathy called me like, the rat's gone, and Bill's going to be home in an hour, I'm like, find the rat, you know, we never did find it till the next day, did we find it that day? Probably in Bill's bed or something, but... But you know, you can't, you know, I mean, you can fake it for an evening, but you can't fake it for six months. And so we got to be on the inside, and we got to watch conflict, and we got to watch how they did conflict, and we got to watch how they, how they disciplined their kids, and how they honored their children, and how their children, even when they were little, were learning how to honor their parents. And, and that was a whole new way of life for us. And I, I think I said it already a couple times, but we would literally lay in bed and talk for, until we fell asleep about how they talked did you see how they interacted did you see I knew Bill was mad about something and I said did you see how I knew Bill was mad at Benny but did you see how he responded and and like we had never seen anything like that we had never seen people connected and and loving one another and honoring one another and and how did honor what did honor look like when they were didn't agree what did honor look like when they were upset with each other And, and the fact that they kept honor at the center of their of their relationships even when they were upset with each other. It's like, we'd never seen anybody actually have an honorable conflict. It's like, if you're in a conflict, you throw out all the attributes and you just win. That's, the, that's, how I, that's what we learned. We learned the goal is to win. And we, we learned that the goal was to stay connected. And the goal was to keep your nobility intact even when you were struggling. And... Uh, I can remember things, simple things, made, made a big deal, were a big deal to us. Like uh, Bill, and, and, uh, Bill, would be, Bill and I would be talking, and, and Brian, of course, would do, or any of the kids would. Brian, I remember Brian, he would, he would always come up and interrupt his father when, you know, he's little. It's like, Daddy, Daddy, I want to go. Daddy, Daddy. And instead of Bill going, hey, we're having a conversation right now, he would say, Chris, excuse me for a minute. And he would, you know, say, Brian, what, what's, what do you need? And, Brian would tell him, and he would say, okay, uh, we'll do that in just a few minutes. And from now on, when you see me interacting with Chris, just wait till we pause before you interrupt. And what he has kept sending a message to his kids, like, you are not less important than the relationships I have. You are the most important relationship I have. And I remember when Bill uh, came to uh, Weaverville and became our pastor, and he he said to our, our board, um, my wife is not free labor. You, you didn't get a two-for-one package. Um, she's, here to, she's here to be my wife. She's not here to be your, 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 your children's worker. Or your, and of course, Benny always helped, but the point was that you, you, you didn't get a free slave. And, um, and he protected his family. And, and Mondays were, uh, of course, Mondays and Saturdays, but especially Mondays were his day off. And it had to be an emergency. I mean, it was just kept sending a message, like, to his family. You're the most important. I, I, I don't have a mistress called the church that you're competing with. And, uh, and that just, uh, I, and we learned a, a lot about, about life, that, that, that fatherhood's about providing, promoting, and protecting our families. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 for a minute. And I just want to um, just look at a couple of uh, verses. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Then the Lord God put the man 
took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate, everybody say to cultivate, and to keep it. To cultivate it and to keep it. Interesting. Um, I, wanted, I just thought it would be good just to kind of look at what was the first role of man. Like what was the first role of, uh, uh, of a man in, in the, in, on the earth. And it says that he was to cultivate it and to keep it. And it's interesting, the word cultivate means to work the word cultivate means to, um, to, be, be, uh, to be a slave to it, to serve it. To, uh, it's interesting, it, it, the word worship comes from the word cultivate. Actually, the word cultivates six times uh, translated worship. To manufacture is another word, to perform, to labor, um, and to, um, to serve. And then it says, and to keep it. And the word keep it means to watch over it, to preserve it. In fact, it's a translated bodyguard in the New American Standard. Uh, a couple times. A guard, guardsman, um, five times. It's translated watchman, a spy, to secure, to protect, to guard, a gatekeeper, one who cares, one who's careful, and one um, who takes care of his family. And I wrote this actually this morning. Fathers are commissioned to be courageous. They don't have the luxury of acting afraid or retreating in the face of danger. Fathers are called to run towards trouble, the sound of trouble, and engage hostility against their families, whether or not they are prepared. They are the first to danger. They send a loud message to all hostiles that there will be resistance to hurting this family, that there will be a noble defender ready to protect this lineage. How many know that's fatherhood? Uh, let me say this, that's fatherhood. Like part of fatherhood is that we're built to cultivate we're, we're built to be the servant. We're built to be, how many know, let the, let the greatest leader of all be the servant of all. And we're there to be the greatest servant. We're there to protect, to promote, and, 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 and to, and to uh, help uh, provide for our families. We are, in, in this sense, I said it years ago, but, and, and I've repeated it many times, that marriage is, how many know that, that God said to wives, respect your husbands, honor your husbands. He also said that, that husbands are to respect their wives. But he said that husbands are to lay down their, their lives for their wife. How many know, are you guys with me today? Am I just boring? I'm sorry, I haven't had light for days. So this is like, prophet comes out of the cave and this is what he has to say. So just try to work with it a little, if you will, just to add a little... It seems a little crotchety, just add a little sugar to it, you know. <laughs> so this is, this is what we do. We, we, are, we, are, we, um, we provide, we protect, and we, uh, and we promote. And so um, I started to say, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for her. And how many understand that wives lead in honor, but husbands lead in I die for you? And I, I've said many times that marriage, especially for the man, is a, a, a death march to a life camp. What we do is we lay down our lives for our, for our families. And the word cultivate actually comes from the word slave. It means that I, I've come to actually lay down my life for you. That it also comes, the word keeper actually has to do with, um, with, with protection. It's interesting because it says uh, in Genesis chapter 4 verse 2, that she gave, speaking of uh, Eve, she gave birth to, uh, to Cain and to Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. A Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but, a but Cain was a tiller of the ground. It's interesting, the word tiller is actually the same exact word cultivate. 
It, she had, Adam and Eve had two sons. What was, Adam's, what was Adam's decree? What were the first two things he was to do? He was to cultivate and keep. And it's interesting that one of his sons became a cultivator and the other son became a keeper. And I'm saying this, is a, this, is, this role's in our DNA as men. We are cultivators and we are keepers. And by the way, we're not talking about uh, women too much today, but women are incubators. How many know we're a cultivator and they are incubators? We give them sperm, they give us a baby. We get, we, we get a house, they make it a home. We bring home beef, they make it a meal. You just got to watch out what happens when you bring home crap. <laughs> what happens when the woman incubates that? Anyway, it was supposed to be a joke, but obviously <laughs> it's gotten such serious mode there that it didn't work too well. Part of cultivating, a, a part of parenting, part of um, actually men and women's role, but is that we, that we, that we as, as a parent, I, as Proverbs says, if we train up a child in the way they should go, then when they get old, they won't depart from it. And so part of this challenge that we have as fathers is the discovery of purpose and destiny in each of our children's lives. It's like this is part of what we do. We, how many know we, it, the goal is to train up a child in the way they should go? And part of the challenge that I see in parenting, and I've had it in my own life, and maybe you have it in yours, is that sometimes I'm living through my children instead of for my children. Sometimes the things I wish I would have done I want them to do, and I try to encourage them in the Lord. <laughs> I always wanted to be a great basketball player. I went out for basketball four times. I never made a team. To this day, I'm at the YMCA. I still haven't made a team. <laughs> They're like, who wants Chris on their team? Like, we had him last week. You know, it's kind of that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I have this thing about my, my grandchildren. I have three kids that play basketball right now and I'm like yes one of them is going to be in the NBA or the WBA you know and so we go to the games and, and you know and I, I just I don't know I lose all nobility when the refs make a bad call on my grandkids I just think it's absolutely wrong and that protection keeper thing jumps on me I'm like that was a bad call stupid ref in Jesus name you're out of here I'm actually a little bit better than that uh, there, there's a, I don't know, I hope you're not a part of this, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but there's a whole movement that believes that children should organically find their destiny without parental garden, guidance. I think this is a reaction to parents living through their children instead of living to empower them. I, 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 what I'm getting at is, uh, you've probably heard it too, it's like, I think that Johnny should just find his own way. I think that Jane should just, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tell him what to do. And I'm like, yes, you don't want to tell him what to do, but one of your one of your jobs as parents is to actually discover, help them discover who they are and, who, and what they were born for. Are you, are you with me? I'm not saying force them into a purpose or force them into a destiny, but the idea that you have no role in it, how many know that's wrong? This is part of fatherhood. This is part of motherhood. We, we, we watch our, our children's uh, gifts and their calls. I believe that there's a danger in deciding your children's future for them. Like prearranged marriages, prearranged destinies seldom work. And I, and I think that a reaction to watching other parents do that, like, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a doctor. Mom, I pass out at the sight of blood. You'll be okay. You know, it's like, now my mother wanted me to be a doctor. Um, I couldn't read, 
so I'd be an uh, illiterate doctor. And I also passed out at the sight of blood. I actually do. Every time my wife gave birth, I passed out every time. <laughs> True story. The first time, they woke me up five times, literally laying on the floor three of the five times. I, the, the, the doctor thought it was his job to keep me awake. I don't even know what's going to happen. Does anyone else have this? Like, I don't, if it's my own blood, it's cool. But if it's anyone else's, I'd like, I just pass out. <laughs> I worked a tow truck, and actually, after a while, the high patrol's like, don't send him on an accident. He'll be hooking up the truck, and there he is on the floor. Then we have to... So I think that there's a danger, in, in, and I think there's a warning about how we guide our children because I do see that I've been a part of a movement that sort of prophesies people's destiny and then kind of tries to like, you know, shepherd them into that direction. I've been a part of a movement that prophesies in the Jesus movement, we prophesy people's marriages all the time, which is one of the reasons why this culture that I lead, the prophetic ministry now been to, been actually is leading now, but one of, the, one of our core values is no mates or dates. And the reason is, is because we prophesy someone's marriage, and you know what happens if they marry them and it, and, it, and it goes wrong, we're like, well, that was a bad prophetic word. If they marry somebody else, the first time they have an argument with that person, like, oh, I married the wrong person. It's the same thing, I think, when you prophesy people's destiny. It's like when you take children, and you're like, you're supposed to be a school teacher, and then they decide to be a truck driver, and they have a bad week, and they're like, I'm, I'm not following God, I should be school teacher and what I'm getting at it's all good if you're absolutely right but I just don't know that you're always right when you're emotionally attached to your children okay let's see I'm simply saying in this prophetic culture how we receive prophecy especially for our children and how we allow our children to be prophesied over should be couched in the Lord will confirm it if this is where he wants you you just go and be and, and love Jesus, and if you want to be a mechanic and he wants you to be a pastor, he'll work it out, don't worry about it. But I don't think we should be like, you're supposed to be a pastor. Look at how you behave today. How many understand that demeaning our children over their destiny is not empowering them for their destiny? Okay, good point. Chris. I want to talk about, um, I, I wrote down seven do's and don'ts in helping our children find their purpose. I probably said most of them already. Number one, pay close attention to the people your children are attracted to because their purpose is in their people. Somebody said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Um, I, I, I want to, you know, one of the things I, that I think is really important is that we introduce our children to people that seem to have the same purpose that our children have. For instance, if your children want to be actors and actresses and you're like, you see there's a gift on them and you have the sense that that is the way they're supposed to be going, like taking them places where they can connect to people that have that same kind of passion and, and especially to healthy people that have that same kind of passion and trying to make sure what you can do is you're like, okay, you're going to be an actor. I don't know if I want you to train in Hollywood. Like I hear about how people come out of Hollywood. And I love what uh, Fab and Dave and uh, with the um, Conservatory of the Arts are doing. I love it. And I remember when they came into my office, Dan and I uh, interacted with them. 
and they started sharing this vision that they have. Gosh, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think it's not enough sunlight. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going through menopause, man. It's like, shush. Started getting hot flashes, and I'm, I don't know what's going on. I remember them sitting in my office and just sharing this vision for, for fathering and mothering the creative people and breaking the patterns of what Hollywood does to people who are creative and sending the best and the brightest and the most gifted people into that world to be catalysts of light and salt. And like, we're, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is exciting. And it's like, if my kids wanted to be actors and actresses, I would want them there. I, I want them to train with the best, but I, I want them a little bit separated, especially as young people, from the cesspool of immorality that has taken over so much of the creative world. So what I'm getting at is like, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I don't want you to be an actor. Look what happens to all those people. I'm like, okay, who can I introduce you to that's doing this right? Are you with me? If my son wants to be a mechanic, if, I'm like, I'm going to introduce him to people that are doing it right. I'm going to introduce him to people that, that do the technician thing with excellence and nobility. I'm saying, I'm not necessarily the one telling them this is what you should do, but I'm watching what God's doing in them, and I'm like, I know that your destiny is in your people, so let me introduce you to some really cool people who have the same values. That's part of what we do. Number two, your opinion is powerful, so make sure you're not superimposing your own desires over their purpose. Um, I, I love what John Maxwell quote. I've quoted it many times in four books. John Maxwell says that most of us become what the most important person in our life thinks we should become. Let me say that again. John Maxwell said that the, most of us become what the most important person in our life thinks we should become. And by the way, you may not be, your child may not think you're the most important person in their life as a mom or dad, but how many of you know God says you are? Hello? Are you guys getting it closer? Okay. You're getting me? Good. Number three, helping our children discover their gifts and callings is a big part of fathering. Um, Proverbs says a man's gift will make room for him and bring him before great men. Um, so part of, uh, part of what we do is very simple. We just simply, you know, we, we, have the, we spend the most time with our kids. It's like, what are our kids really good at and what, they're, what are they not really good at, you know? Um, I, Proverbs says that the plans of a man are like deep waters. And a man of understanding comes and draws them out. How many know that oftentimes we're the man, the, the woman, we're the person of understanding who we, di we, we go deep into those wells and we go, look what I found in you. It's the story of Saul um, encountering the prophets, and I've preached it so many times here, in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. It's like Saul's looking for his donkeys, and in the middle of his donkey, he finds his destiny. Why? Because the prophet says, tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. And the connotation of the prophet is that what you're supposed to be doing is already in your heart. Your head doesn't know it, but your heart knows it. And this is a part of what we do as fathering and mothering. We reach down into the hearts of our children, and we go, look what I found inside of you. I found a purpose. I found a destiny. And it's so funny in the story of Saul, he doesn't even know he's supposed to be king, and yet the prophet says, I'm going to tell you tomorrow morning what's in your heart. And that next morning, he anoints him king, in which the prophet said, this is already down inside of you. You just don't know it. I'd propose that oftentimes our kids are the only ones that don't know they're amazing. 
They're the only ones that don't know that they're a great artist. They draw things that are amazing, they tear it up, they throw it in the garbage, and you're like, what's amazing? Look at this, my kids, the next Leonardo da Vinci. And they're like, oh, Dad, that's terrible, that's a piece of junk. They sing a song, you're like, that's amazing. You're the next Christian Lady Gaga, or whoever's popular, I don't even know who's popular. <laughs> Is she even popular anymore? I don't even know. I just mentioned her because I was trying to be cool. <laughs> Number four, sons and daughters need encouragement, but they don't need control, so watch how you lead them. Number five, expose your children to lots of diverse situations, occupations, and cultures so they can get a taste of a variety of the different uh, uh, noble purposes. I, I've, um, and I know my kids have done the same, but I, th I think I've really done a, a good job, Kathy and I have done a good job with our grandkids in trying to expose them to different cultures and different occupations so that they can get a little taste of things to see if it's something they would like to do. I think I've taken two or three of my kids to, uh, to Africa. Um, I, I loved, I took my granddaughter to Africa. She was uh, 16 at the time, 17, 16 I think she was at the time. And we went to Africa and it, was, uh, it took us uh, 36 hours to get there. And my granddaughter, she's uh, never really been anywhere. And so we get off the plane, actually, so it was five plane flights and plane flight number five, we get out in South Africa. And when we get on the plane, we get all seated, and Heidi Baker's sitting right across from us. And we're going to Heidi's place. So immediately, Heidi and, and, uh, and Misha made a, a great connect. We got off the plane, you know, okay, we're 36 hours flying, and what do you usually want to do, right? Sleep, right? We get off the plane, and Heidi's like, awesome, you need to come right now, and, and let's go out to the ocean and meet the children. And my granddaughter's like, oh, Papa, I don't want to do that right now. I'm like, I don't think she was asking. <laughs> so we go to the room, and it's super hot. We kind of change clothes. We go to the ocean, which is right there. They live right on the ocean. And there's, like, I don't know, two, three hundred, obviously, African black kids. And many of them have only never seen a white person except for Heidi and Roland. And so she runs out there, and they all want to touch her hair. 300 kids surround her to touch her hair. She's like, Papa, I'm like, hey, this is Africa. <laughs> I don't like Africa. I'm like, well, I exposed you to a new culture. And um, by the time we left, six days later, she's like, Papa, I want to come here and spend the rest of my life. I'm like, maybe. <laughs> I should tell you she fell in love with a boy there. <laughs> okay. For another time. <laughs> she fell in love with a boy there. You know, that, that, that's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> and number six, don't discourage your sons and daughters from going after their dreams just because they're way out of reach. I, 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 Banning preached this message years ago uh, in a conference I did. And, uh, and Banny was one of the speakers, and he was talking about that God is bigger than discouragement. And he was talking about his daughters and his sons, and he was, and he was saying, you know, one of my sons wants to be an astronaut. And he's like, do you know what the chances of them actually being an astronaut is? It's like one in one billion, two hundred, and you know, had this whole statistic about the fact that the chances of him being asked, like, it, it'd be, he'd have a better chance of being an NBA star 
or an NFL player than being an astronaut. And so he said he was like talking about like, you know, how do I tell him like, you can't be an astronaut. There's only like 20 astronauts who've ever been astronauts. Like what are the chances that you're going to be an astronaut? And not only that, but you're too small. And he, he had all these reasons why his kid couldn't be an astronaut. And then the Lord said to him, am I, is discouragement bigger than me? And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? It's like, do you think that if your son doesn't become, I think it's actually his daughter. If you, do you think, if your daughter doesn't become an astronaut, that her life is over because discouragement is bigger than my ability to change her? And so he went through this whole thing. It was so beautiful. Like, he's like, I, wanted, I felt like my job was just to tone it down. Like, don't dream too big because you might be discouraged. You might be disappointed. Don't think I'm going to be an, you know, I'm going to be an NBA player. Yes, but have a plan B because that might not happen. And Banning's point, and I, I loved it, he was like, on the way to being an astronaut, you may not be an astronaut, but in your passion to be an astronaut, you might find out you're supposed to be a king. You're supposed to be an engineer. You're supposed to be something else. And sometimes on the way to find our donkeys, as a metaphor for Saul going to look for donkeys, we find our destiny. And we're like, I don't want you to, to, to go for that because you may not... You may not get there. Yes, maybe I won't, but on the way to find that, the fact that I'm motivated to reach for the stars may be that I capture the moon. Good. Number seven, encourage and motivate your sons and daughters to try. Just move forward. Just try something. For example, if there are three doors in front of them, choose one. Sometimes we get locked up in like, I don't know what to do. Some of you are like that. But especially as a kid, you're like, there's, there's three opportunities. Some of the challenge with our kids is they have too many choices. Do you know in merchandising, for instance, if you talk about like uh, penetrating oil, like lubricating oil, I remember one time we're like in our, in our marketing, we were like, let's have 30 different brands of lubricants, <laughs> lubricating oil. And we have these 30 different brands, and we found that when we gave people lots of choices, they actually, they actually chose less products. <laughs> they actually sold less. If we gave people like, here's the five we recommend, they, our sales went up. And what I'm getting at is oftentimes people, in, they get locked in life. The problem isn't that they, don't, that they don't have any choices. The problem is they have too many choices, and they don't know which one to choose. And I'm like, this is my, this is my theory. If you have three doors representing choices, and you're like, okay, I don't know which one to choose, and I'm like, okay, a little bit of analyst, analytics is good. It's good. Like, think about it. Pray about it. I prayed about it. I still don't know what to do. Well, oftentimes, the Lord's like, which one do you want to do? And sometimes I, I think like a slave, like, tell me. I want to obey. And God's all, you're a son. I'll bless you, no matter which door you choose. Listen, this is my theory. Encourage them, choose one. <laughs> if I choose one door and I go through it for two years, guess what? The journey is as important as the destination anyway. And if it sucks, I'm like, okay. Now I got a 50% chance of getting it right instead of a 33% chance of getting it right. And now I can choose door two with a little bit more character. That's what I think. 
sometimes we stand back and watch our kids do stuff it's just stupid and we're like I remember um, my friend I was probably 12 and I had my friend his name was Ray we called him Ray Ray and we lived in the we lived in uh, in a track in the in the hood government housing uh, when I was uh, a young very young boy and right behind us was a um, was a um, a tomato orchard a tomato orchard whatever it, like like a thousand acres of tomatoes and there was a there was a, a canal and then a chain link fence like the canal I assume was probably the way that the farmers got water to water their their fields and uh, and then there was a large six-foot chain link fence um, right on the edge of the canal like literally the canal was like a, a foot from the from the uh, from the chain link fence to separate the housing project from the from the field and so um, we used to like jump the fence all the time of course and so one day my friend Ray Ray and I were like let's make a boat and put it in the river the canal right so we build this boat out of plywood and uh, we don't we don't know what we're doing build this boat we get some of my stepfather's tools and we build this boat and we uh, we 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 take it over and we we throw it over the top of the fence and, be, and then we, of course we have to climb the fence and we got a rope on it so it doesn't go down the river which is a canal and we, so we have to climb the fence to get over it so we kind of push it over into the water and we climb over the fence and before we can get in the boat it's got a big knot hole it was made out of, out of plywood and a knot popped out and the, and the water came in and the boat sank so you know I mean we're like 12 and we got to try to get the boat out full of water you can understand how how that was and back over the fence and there's there's no room to hardly stand so we get it back over the fence and we take it to my house and we're like okay what are we gonna do it's like okay what we should do is so we found a hole saw the exact size of the hole that was in the puffed out of the knot and we, we, were, we were drilling another hole in the bottom of the boat and my stepdad comes out and he's like uh, what are you doing so we built the boat I can see that what that's, what, what are you doing with the boat? Why, why are you drilling a hole in the bottom of the boat? Well, water came in this hole, so we drilled another hole the same size so the water could go back out the other hole. <laughs> I'll never forget the look on his face. He goes, okay. <laughs> I don't even know if I need to tell you the rest of that story. You go down to the river. We throw it over the top of the fence, and water just comes in both holes, and we're like, whoa, whoa, there's a principle here we were unaware of. I've watched my kids do stuff that stupid. And sometimes as fathers, you have to decide, do I let the water teach them? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, do I let the water teach him or do I say something? And sometimes it's a balancing act, right? Sometimes it just it takes everything in your soul to go, I don't think I'm going to say anything. <laughs> like, let's let life teach them some lessons. And part of fathering and mothering is the delicate dance that we have with when do I let circumstances be their mentor and when do I step in and say you could drown in that ship and I think this is all part of mothering and fathering too isn't it the delicate balance of do I step in 
you know, their first broken heart. I can remember every one of the, my kids' first broken heart coming home crying. It's like, do I try to fix it? Or do I be the encourager and allow God to be God in their lives? How many of you have ever been challenged with that, just the decision itself? Like, is this, do we, do we intervene here? Or do we let God, do we leave them in the hands of God and say, God, we're scared that they're going to make the wrong decision here, but we pray that you guide them and that this circumstance becomes their mentor. There's so much more to say, but I really want to encourage you. I have this deep sense that God takes the fatherless and he's a father to them, but he's not a father without flesh and blood. And my sense is that many of us, as Isaiah 58 says, we will become a father to the fatherless. And many of us men who have already raised our children will find ourselves engaged in fathering again. And I want to say to the mothers the same. Obviously the message this morning is directed at fathers, but this would relate to all of us. That we engage in the fatherless, that we engage in the motherless, and that we find ourselves kind of being like adopting orphans and helping them to make the transition from orphans to daughters, from orphans to sons. And I want to tell you, don't be surprised if your heart begins to yearn for more children, and I'm not even talking about necessarily biological children, but if your heart begins to, mo- to, to yearn for children who have been bereaved, who have been unfathered, who have been left to themselves because I believe there's a movement happening that this preach that this message is not just something I thought up but actually a prophetic declaration that the Lord is calling fathers home and many of these children have no fathers so when we talk about a movement in which fathers return I can't even tell you you know them too there's their people don't even know who their fathers are and so I, I prayerfully want you to consider that God wants you to open your heart. And you may spend an hour a week. It may not be something that you bring them into your home. You may just connect with someone for an hour a week. I remember years ago, and I'll finish this story very quickly, that um, we were, uh, we had this uh, youth group with, it was uh, started out with all probation kids, and uh, there was this young boy, he was 15, he was about 13 when we started. And um, he was in our group. And he started coming to our church, which was about 15 miles from where we did the group at. And he was, one Sunday, he was sitting uh, towards the front of the church as a 15-year-old. And uh, I looked out over him, and I, was, I, I actually wasn't thinking about anything besides it, we were in the middle of worship. I wasn't like, this wasn't a preconceived idea or something I had been considering. But when I looked at him, and I was probably four rolls behind him, the Lord said, behold your son. And I was so startling. I was like, well, that's a... That was a weird, it definitely had to be God or the devil because it wasn't me. And then I eliminated the devil pretty quick. So we got home that day and he, he would often come home with us. And on the drive home, I kind of whispered to Kathy this, this encounter I had. And she said, that's funny because this week I had a dream that the Lord was going to give us a fourth child. And she said, when I saw Eddie, I knew he was the one. And we ended up adopting him. 
Would you stand? I want to pray for the spirit of adoption to come on all of us in this room. And again, you may not bring somebody into your home. You may, you may not be a person who's you know, ready to have the responsibility of a child. But how many know all of us can influence and mentor somebody? Because we're called to disciple people. And so, Lord, I pray. Would you just put your hand on your heart? Lord, I pray that there would be a spirit of adoption in this room in which we as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters reach out to people that have no connection to people and bring them into our lives and connect with them and take the goodness and the strength and the protection and the provision and the promotion of our life and direct it towards people so that they can move from the global orphanage of abandonment into spiritual families in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.